Hello and welcome to another edition of the China in Africa podcast. I'm Eric Olander, and as always, I'm joined by Koba's fan Staden, who's uh, on the line from Cape Town today, from the campus of Stellenbosch University and the Center for Chinese Studies. Good afternoon, Koba's. Good afternoon. Well, as always, we take a look at three topics from the week and that made the news, and we kind of break them down, dissect them, and at the same time, want to get your input as well on the show on our Facebook page at facebook.com slash China Africa Project. Uh, but in the meantime, let's get on with the show. We're going to talk about three topics today. Uh, another killing in West Africa of a Chinese national, and this time it really provokes a response from Beijing and, and an official diplomatic protest. We'll talk about two deaths in two weeks in Nigeria following the, a recent death as well in Ghana. So uh, the threat facing Chinese nationals in West Africa. That'll be first topic. Second topic, we're going to move to the leadership change in China. Now, not the change that we've all been talking about with Xi Jinping assuming the presidency. Actually, there's another change that's underway of a, of a very important body, and this is of the ex-Imbank, the Export-Import Bank of China. And in many ways, this is far more important for Africans than actually who's at the top of the presidential ticket in China. So we'll talk about the Export-Import Bank in an article in the Africa Report. And then finally, we're going to go to uh, a report that came out last week from the Africa Research Institute, Between Extremes, China and Africa, and a fantastic report. So we'll kind of break down one of these and give you a real recommendation of some, some worthwhile reading uh, for this week ahead. So, Kobus, let's get started. In Nigeria, it feels like we're on a broken record here of shootings of Chinese nationals in West Africa. We talked about on the show, I think, two weeks ago uh, about the death of a 16-year-old Chinese, Chinese boy. Uh, and that prompted a, a, an official response from the foreign ministry in Beijing, which is rather unusual. Uh, and now we had, three weeks ago, we had the death of a Chinese cook uh, in, uh, in northeastern Nigeria. And now we had a, a construction worker who was shot and killed just last week in, in, uh, in, nor in northern Nigeria, where there have been a lot of sectarian tensions there as well. Kind of give me a sense of, of your reading on this. And is this a trend or is this just an isolated cluster of killings? Well, you know, kind of, it seems in, in the in the case of the, the the big difference, I think, between the case in Ghana and in Nigeria is that in Ghana, obviously, um, the kid who was killed um, was killed as part of police action um, against, uh, you know, kind of uh, illegal mining. While in Nigeria, um, there's not a hundred percent, you know, clarity about who killed who because Northern Nigeria is, is in such flux at the moment. But you know, most people seem to agree that it's probably related to to um, Boko Haram rebels, who are um, radical Islamic rebels who want uh, to split off Northern Nigeria from um, from the Christian South, um, and who want Sharia law, and has been um, pretty much dragging Northern Nigeria slowly but surely into chaos. You know, apparently since two. 2010, they've killed about 1,400 people. Um, so, you know, it, it seems that um, the, the cook who was killed uh, might have been killed as part of a, a robbery. Um, the, it's, it's still unclear. The, the, the um, construction worker seems to have been killed by, by actual terrorist attack on the on the construction site but we're but still not by a stray bullet but yes and i think yeah. that's your it was a stray bullet and we're still not sure and there's been no evidence to suggest 
that the, the Chinese, both of the Chinese who were killed were intentionally killed because they were Chinese. Now, this comes in contrast to the intentional, the very intentional hostage taking that we saw in Sudan and in Egypt last year, where Chinese were actually targeted. Uh, this, as far as we can tell from the, re- from the reporting, uh, happens to be these guys were in the wrong place and at the wrong time. That's, that's from what we can see. And I think just to provide a little bit of context, uh, Kobus, to what you were saying about Boko Haram, you know, Boko Haram came out with a vengeance a couple years ago uh, with some Christmas Day attacks, you know, killing horrific, you know, attacks in, in, uh, in Nigeria. Uh, and it really has polarized, you know, Nigeria in terms of how to deal with it. And the north, uh, where this is predominantly Muslim, has been really, you know, racked with violence. And the fact that the Chinese are now, you know, increasingly present there does make them targets. And I wonder, Kobus, what your thoughts are in terms of the ability of you know, employees for Chinese state-owned enterprises, and these, in both of these killings, they were construction workers for state-owned enterprises, so they were not independent migrants who were there. Um, what can be done to protect them? Do you envision a day that you will see potentially armed uh, Chinese military contractors? I don't, I'm not suggesting that the PLA will be there, but I am suggesting that there might be security that would, that would surround a construction workforce, whether it's local or Chinese-owned. Do you see that coming? Um, not immediately. Um, and when they get them, um, I would get, I would be surprised if they were necessarily Chinese. Um, you know, it, it might make more sense for those companies to hire local people to do their security. Um, you know, as, 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 as other foreign companies frequently do, um, in Africa. Um, you know, I think one of the reasons why Chinese people are so vulnerable is because um, Boko Haram mostly operates in the north of Nigeria, which is much, much more uh, poor, much more impoverished than the south of Nigeria. The south of Nigeria is the, the kind of economic center. And the north of Nigeria has traditionally been had a lot of problems with infrastructure, and the infrastructure is now being extended. Um, and of course, who extends infrastructure in Africa is Chinese companies. Um, so, you know, it might be that they're unlucky in the sense that, you know, they're lucky to get the, or the you know, kind of they're the people who get the jobs, and then the workers are unlucky, unlucky because they happen to be in the, the area where there is the most care. Now, what was unusual about this past week was the fact that the the Chinese foreign ministry in Beijing did lodge a formal protest to uh, the government in Abuja, saying that the Nigerian government needs to do more to protect Chinese nationals. And we talked about this in the context of Ghana a couple weeks ago as well, is that this might be the way that you start to see the Chinese exert their incredibly imbalanced trade relationships with these you know, various countries, Nigeria included. Now, Nigeria is a slightly different case because it has oil. But this being said, the fact that it can now exert pressure on these different countries to actually take actions, whether or not these countries want to do anything. So I wonder, you know, and this we've talked about in the past, this idea that the relationship with particularly smaller African countries, so maybe Nigeria doesn't apply here, is less of a colonial or neo-colonial, as we've dismissed, you know, many times, and more of the tributary relationship. And that tributary relationship is one that is defined by a highly inequitable relationship in terms of size. So China is such a huge country next to Gabon or next to Congo or next to any of these smaller countries that by virtue of the fact that billions and billions of dollars have flowed from Beijing to these countries, it gives Beijing disproportionate influence in these countries. And then pressuring these countries to protect their nationals might be one way we see the Chinese exert influence. Uh, Am I reading too much into this? 
I mean, we might see that in the future, but I'm not really seeing it at the moment. You know, um, I haven't seen, except for the kind of, uh, you know, diplomats, uh, you know, protesting about the, about the situation. I haven't really seen any other kind of um, pressure or any any kind of threats, you know, kind of to to exert economic pressure. You know, those might have happened, you know, behind closed doors. But I mean, at the same time as as this was happening, China um, was actually at a summit with. Uh, the economic um, community of West African states, ECOWAS, you know, kind of setting up new deals, new trade and investment and technological cooperation deals, you know, with all of these West African countries, including Nigeria and including Ghana. So, you know, it seems like you know, kind of, even though they, they, they're they protesting, they, they don't seem to be pushing, they don't seem to be wielding their weight kind of in, in other kind of ways. Well, the only thing that I might, you know, disagree with you on, and it's a minor disagreement, is the fact that, okay, fair enough that the Chinese, you know, are not registering any stronger of a protest than what we saw come out of the foreign ministry. But that said, when one of the, the highlights, and you sent around this article when we were talking about Ghana and the killing there, was the indignant response on Weibo, the Chinese version of Twitter and social networks, about how, you know, how dare these people kill one of ours. You know, it was this very nationalistic, very provincial kind of view, response. And, uh, and I always contend that there's a myth, uh, you know, outsiders looking into China, that China is not subject to public relations and public pressure and domestic pl- public pressure, particularly coming from social networks. So there may be the day, as we saw in Sudan and Egypt earlier this year when Chinese nationals were kidnapped at gunpoint and held for ransom, that there is a domestic political price that's that's paid and putting pressure on Chinese politicians to act more aggressively than they normally would simply because the social networks are pushing them and it's not in their ability to control those social networks, as we've seen in, in, in the past. So that's just one little X factor on this. Uh, one quick question for you before we, we move on to the next topic. Um, again, do you see this as a trend in terms of the the fact that the Chinese are more present in these communities and the fact that maybe it's because Chinese, unlike Westerners who are there, don't have security details, don't live behind high walls, don't have the, the necessary security awareness that a lot of Western and, uh, aid workers and, and expatriates have when they're in those areas. And so they're harder targets to, to hit. Yeah, I mean, um, I think the very the very presence of more Chinese people there means that more Chinese people are going to become kidnapped and, and you know and, and, and probably become targets. Um, whether they would become more, how can I say? Whether the the targeting of them would, be, would become more um, concerted and more explicit, um, that's another thing. Um, you know, I think also one has to one has to make the distinction between between people like this cook who was actually going with his assistant to the markets to actually buy stuff and people who work at very high level, um, you know, high, high up in big Chinese organizations, because I think they would have security detail properly, particularly in a country like, like Nigeria, where kidnapping is, is rampant. Well, let, um, let's not forget that yeah, a topic that this we... This is a class thing. Maybe. Yeah, it, it's a class thing, but also something a topic we covered at the end of last year. You know, in 2011, I think if I remember correctly, 25 Chinese nationals were killed in South African crime over the year. Um, and, and that was not any conspiracy against Chinese. There was just, you know, South Africa and Johannesburg are some of the, you know, they're tough places to live. And when you put people there, it doesn't matter what color or what nationality you are, you're going to be subject to crime and violence. Yes, I think I think in the South African case, it's also become certain communities um, have get the the image not only of having money, but of not wanting to uh, deposit that money in bank accounts. 
that's in, in the case of South Africa, um, Chinese, there's, a, there's a, a stereotype of Chinese business people that they tend to want to keep their money in cash in safes in their houses because they don't want to deal with internal revenue. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, how, how fair that is, is, you know, is up for debate. But, you know, that is an image that of, of them, not only of Chinese people, but also of Indian nationals in South Africa, well, which means that they frequently become the victims of crime and particularly violent crime. Well, it's not unreasonable because the Chinese and, and Vietnamese and other Asian groups oftentimes don't uh, put money in the bank and do keep them in the, in, the, in their homes. So, uh, okay, so let's uh, we'll keep an eye on this. We've had three weeks and three killings, so um, it'd be nice if we had a break in the story for next week, but we will definitely continue to keep our eyes on this and the political fallout that may come from this latest round of killings in uh, Nigeria. Okay, let's move on now to, uh, to Chinese politics. We don't usually talk about Chinese politics on the show, as our program is usually focused on what happens in Africa. Uh, But now we're going to Beijing. Now, on November 8th, uh, which is about a week and a half from now, there is going to be uh, a very, very important political transition where uh, President uh, Elo, it's not President-elect, President-nominated Xi Jinping is going to take over from President Hu Jintao. Uh, And this is really one of the, the, you know, the most important political transitions that we've seen in China in, in, you know, at least 10 years. Uh, but behind the scenes, there's more that's actually happening. And Sebastian Lubelzik, who is the correspondent for the Africa Report, he wrote an article on uh, on the 25th of October. China's Exim Bank, Africa's largest financer, looks for an even bigger role. And what it kind of illustrates is the fact that the China Exim Bank, the Export Import Bank, has now in Africa is playing a bigger role than the World Bank and even I think the IMF as well. And what we're seeing is this this is an extremely powerful institution and an extremely aggressive institution where a third of its entire loan, loan portfolio is now going to Africa. So there is actually a, uh, a political transition that's happening there and it's one that may have a much more intimate effect on, China, on Africa than we see at the top of the presidential uh, administration that's there. So, Kobus, talk to us a little bit about the Exim Bank and the influence that it's having on the continent, and should people be aware of this political transition that's happening uh, at that institution? Yes, I think people should definitely pay you know, pay attention. That said, it's maybe not the easiest thing in the world to know what's going on you know, behind the doors of the Chinese Exim Bank. Um, the... I think um, you know. It's, I think we're probably seeing it's 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 massive power in Africa means that we're also seeing a shift towards uh, you know a financial institution that is playing with by a slightly different set of rules in the sense that it's it's so located within one state and it's so located so it's uh, such close relationships to the the rest of the Chinese government. So, for example, the ex bank um, is sitting under the joint tutelage of the commerce and foreign affairs ministries in China. So it, it, it's explicitly, you know, related to, and how it's related to that is an issue, you know, that people are um, arguing about, but it's explicitly related to the way that China as a government conducts its foreign affairs, which is obviously very different from the World Bank. Um, you know, and uh, so, so that, I think, the you know, changes in, in the leadership in Beijing then has a, a much more direct kind of, uh, you know, impact in Africa than changes in leadership at the World Bank would have, for example. 
Okay, so I really want to pick up on this issue that you alluded to of, of transparency and that it's hard to tell what's actually happening inside the Export-Import Bank because you often hear this about the Chinese in Africa. And, and I'm going to make a contention here that, you know, the World Bank and the IMF are not necessarily, A, the most democratic institutions you've ever seen. I mean, Christine Lagarde was named uh, head of the International Monetary Fund by virtue of the fact largely that she's European and there's this deal between the Americans and the Europeans that they both get to name their heads of those institutions dating back to the Bretton Woods agreement. And then on top of it, these are bureaucracies that are largely out of sight of any kind of oversight. So, you know, are the Chinese that different than the IMF and the World Bank when it comes to opacity and transparency? No, I think I think that's probably not where they're different. Um, you know, they seem to be pretty kind of opaque. Um, I think what's what, where they are different is is um, is maybe in the transparency that they demand from the African side, um, and then also maybe the you know just just in terms of their um, their general enthusiasm for African projects. I think that's where the big difference comes comes in. You know, is that they um, that they are just funding more stuff in Africa. You know, so they seem to be even if they are opaque, they seem to be more forthcoming, you know, in their opacity. Um, and that, I think, is already, you know, very refreshing for Africa. Yeah, and it also gives Africa a choice in some respects. A lot of countries um, have, have really appreciated the fact that, you know, the, again, I and I put no value judgment on this because this is a potentially very sensitive issue here. Uh, but, you know, a lot of the World Bank and the IMF agendas are tied to um, the more kind of, you know, liberal market agendas associated with the Washington consensus. Uh, and so that is has to do with the democracy, lower trade, you know, uh, lower trade barriers and, and tariffs, whatnot, uh, and things that a lot of African governments haven't wanted to do when it comes to opening their markets and also democratizing their societies. Again, disclaimer, don't take an, an opinion on whether that's good or bad. But having a force as large or now larger than the World Bank and the IMF allows them to play one off the other. And that, that might be interesting. Yeah, I think so. In theory, it does. The problem, though, is that Africans, African countries are still overwhelmingly locked into bilateral agreements with China, um, which means that they can't fruitfully really play the, you know, a country like Gabon or, you know, uh, or even smaller countries, they, they find it difficult to really play, meaningfully play the World Bank and the Exxon Bank off against each other because they're so small, you know, in, in relation to into relation to these bodies. Um, you know, if, if, a, if a body like ECOWAS or like the whole of East Africa, the whole of West Africa or Southern Africa, actually, you know, kind of actually uh, bargain together and collectively, you know, kind of play the two off against each other, then that I think would, would uh, create a lot more um, opportunities, particularly not only for, for better deals, but also for more intra-region kind of development you know uh, projects because that's what the country needs. They they don't only need to to uh, develop individual countries. They need to in, to develop the links between countries. Um, and so far, they're not getting that out of either. Well, uh, Gabon may be too small, but the Democratic Republic of Congo is not. And I think the best example of this was when Joseph Kabila basically told the the IMF to go get stuffed. I don't remember the exact year. And turned to the Chinese for 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 concession loans. Um, those loans were eventually you know, rescinded in large part after the IMF came back to the table to adjust some of its uh, requirements for those loans. But it was really the, the shot across the bow for the IMF and the World Bank. One other point that I want to bring up here is the speed with which the Chinese uh, work at. So already in 2012, 
the Africa Report article kind of highlights the fact that a half a billion dollars has been awarded from the Exim Bank to the Republic of Congo for the reconstruction of the Impila neighborhood. Now, Impila neighborhood is the neighborhood just across the Congo River from Kinshasa. If you recall back in March, there was, uh, I think, two, if not maybe one, but at least two, at least one uh, arms munitions depots that exploded and really effectively destroyed uh, the entire downtown neighborhood of the capital along the river. Uh, now, the Chinese in six months have poured a half a billion dollars in for the reconstruction. So say whatever you want about the IMF and the World Bank. They do not move that fast. Uh, so efficiency and speed might be the hallmarks of the Export-Import Bank. And for a lot of Africans on the street, you know, the, the so-called African street, like the Arab street, that ability to deliver results uh, might be part of this broader hearts and minds campaign that we've talked about, you know, for so many times in terms of, you know, trying to win the public perception battle. So being able to deliver half a billion dollars in less than six months, that's kind of impressive in my view. Yeah, and also, you know, just as a, as an aside, it's also weirdly kind of symbolic in the sense that some Chinese people were actually killed when those munition stocks exploded. Like they were collateral damage, you know, they just happened to be there. And now, you know, China is actually rebuilding that that part of town where that happened, you know. So, I mean, it's, it is actually kind of touching in a way. And they've put another half a billion dollars to connect uh, Douala and Yaoundé in Cameroon. Yeah, Yaoundé, of course, being the capital city there. And $120 million for electrification projects in Chad. Um, you know, the other thing is when you see the kinds of projects that the Chinese are involved in, that the Export-Import Bank is involved in. Um, and again, I, you know, I get accused of this on a couple different occasions from different quarters that we are somehow, or at least I'm cheerleading the Chinese in Africa, which I really <laughs> am most definitely not. But... These kinds of projects, in my opinion, go to dispute the notion of this kind of neo-colonial argument, because this is not the way that neo-colonists behave um, by, by, by financing these kinds of loans, in my opinion. Now, the, we have not seen the fine print on these loans and what the repayment terms are or if they are, because this is the Export-Import Bank. This is not an aid development program. So these are, these are funds that are to be presumably repaid. Am I correct on that? Yeah, no, that, that's how I understand it. I'm not sure exactly, you know, kind of, um, I think the point that's been made is that very, very little of of, um, of China's, um, you know, grants and loans and so on are actually come in the form of real aid, like the way that, that Western countries give aid. You know, mostly the, these are loans that have to be repaid in different kind of ways. Um, I think the other difference between something like the World Bank and the, the Chinese Exim Bank is just that the World Bank has had such a, uh, you know, the, the Exxon Bank is new. The World Bank has had a long period to make itself very unpopular in Af- in Africa. Um, have you ever seen that the movie Bamako? Yes. By, um, yes. Uh, I'm messing up his name, the Malian director, where the World Bank is actually put on trial and they have like, they, they, they play act out this kind of, you know, uh, trial, like a, like a court trial for, for the World Bank and the IMF. You know, I mean, that's the kind of image of the World Bank and the IMF in Africa, you know, because just these these vultures, Listen, you know. Um, uh, so, so in a sense, you know, the Chinese, I think, are just, they're just new, you know, so, so that already, yeah. Listen, there's no doubt that, the, that, you know, that there's every potential in the world that the Chinese can become as big an asshole as the World Bank and the IMF are, you know, uh, you know, I'm using impolite words here, but, you know, some of the most offensive people I've ever met, and I've been in Washington at World Bank 
uh, NIMF events. I've actually met several people of their mission, their country, various country missions as well. Um, they, they definitely rank up there in some of the, the world's most arrogant people you've ever met. And there is this idea that, well, this program worked in Mali, so it's going to work in Lesotho. And you're just like, wait, wait what? Uh, and, and that's how they have very much a one-size-fits-all. Um, the, the stabilization programs that they imposed you know, after the 1997 economic crisis in, uh, in South America and in, in Asia, uh, it was really the classic example. Um, and you know, so they have terrible reputations that are really well-deserved. And, and I'm thrilled to see an alternative come up. So let me go to a point that Cabuena, one of our regular listeners in Ghana, has made, and he's also a contributor on the show, uh, is that, you know, replacing the IMF and the World Bank with the Chinese, who just may have lower interest rates, but yet still burden, you know, these, these small countries, particularly like Ghana, with huge amounts of debt that they'll never be able to get out of, um, is, is really not helping anybody. Um, so if the Chinese keep – we see $500 million for, for the Republic of Congo, $120 million for Chad. Presumably that has to be paid back. Um, you know, this is burdening a next generation of young Africans with loans. So I suppose. I mean, I mean, I mean I suppose. But yeah. on, on the other hand, though, that – I mean – those countries need roads and ports and refineries. You know, without that, they're not. You know, they they just. You know, if they don't have those those facilities, then they're going to be sitting in debt anyway. Um, and you know, and and at least these these. Um, at least it gives them, you know, a path towards repaying some of the debt and like growing their economies, maybe, you know? Yeah, well, it's definitely an issue that uh, not only Africans should be paying attention to, but anybody interested in the international development models that are the, that are out there should be focusing on the transition at the Exim Bank. Once again, this is an article in the Africa Report. You can find them at theafricareport.com. Sebastien Le Belzic uh, in Beijing wrote this article. It's something that I had not been aware of, so I thought this was uh, a really excellent choice for a topic this week. So let's go on to our last topic, and this is a piece that came out of the, um, the, the Africa Research Institute, and I really want to give them a shout-out for tweeting this to me and sending it to me over Twitter. Uh, it's a great way of letting us know if there's something that you're following and you want us to talk about on the show, tweet us. You can also go onto our Facebook page at facebook.com slash China Africa Project. We'll give our Twitter names at the end of the show, uh, but the Africa Research Institute in London was gracious enough to bring this one to our attention. Now, Cobus, when, when I read this report, you know, I read academic reports and you're just kind of like, oh, they're sometimes really thick and they're kind of dense and, <laughs> you know, but, you know, we've had our frustrations with the journalism side of Africa, covering China and Africa. Generally speaking, I find the academic writing to be better and more balanced. Um, what was surprising about this particular report, uh, Between Extremes, China and Africa, was it really felt like a talking point kind of summary of our show uh, for the past year, <laughs> which I'm flattered, uh, but it was some validation and some vindication for us that we're not talking completely out of our asses. Um, so that was neat. And, and, you know, the fact that they really took uh, – a both sides approach to the China Africa story, one that we, you and I talk about that it isn't good, it isn't bad, it isn't black, it isn't white. It's really somewhere in the middle and people get to see out of it what they want. Um, let's pick a couple different points out of this. The first and most important point was that they said China in Africa is a product of globalization, not colonization. So they hit the most sensitive issue right off the bat. What was your thought on that? Yeah, I thought that was a great way to to put it. You know, kind of it because it not only because it 
you know, it, it shows, you know, the points that we've been making, um, you know, that colonization just doesn't work. It's just not exact enough a word, you know, kind of to to reflect what's actually happening. And the other thing is also that, that um, China-Africa engagement isn't happening in a vacuum. Like the Chinese didn't show up on Africa's doorstep alone. They're showing up everywhere, you know, so, so it's, it's part of a global, uh, you know, process that is happening in many other areas as well. Um, and it needs to, be, I think, be seen in that context. Yeah, one of the other issues that they talk about, I mean, this is really the greatest hits of China-Africa issues. Uh, They talk about the non-interference issue, and this is something that's come up in the past week as well in a number of different other articles about how long China can go uh, kind of pursuing to its long-held doctrine that dates back to the Mao era and Zhou Enlai of this non-interference doctrine, which says that China will not interfere in the internal affairs of other countries. But yet, as China's engagement in Africa deepens, as its strategic interests deepen, will Beijing be confronted with the day that it must actually intervene and violate this long-held, deeply-held uh, political stance that they've had? So that was one of the other key issues. And, and, and I want to kind of go to the next point with you, Kobus, on this about the question of migration. Again, the third of the very sensitive issues that they talk about. And they they address the same thing you and I have talked about, how uh, you know, there's real diversity in the population of Chinese migrants in, in Africa, across the continent, uh, from people who work for state-owned enterprises to independent entrepreneurs to illegal labor and illegal migrants themselves. What was your reaction to the, to the piece on the, that portion of the article? Yeah, I thought that they put it very well. You know, they they also made they made a great point that um, that where we we're sitting at the moment is in the in halfway through a process of evolution. So you know, everyone is is predicting that as China, um, Chinese uh, workers become higher higher educated and they demand better money. Um, China is going to start shedding jobs and they're going to start transferring jobs offshore. Um, and one place where they might transfer those to might be Africa. Um, you know, and, uh, you know, but it hasn't happened yet. No. Um, and at the same time, many, many poor Chinese people are moving to Africa and many, and they, they have kind of business contacts, you know, kind of with an under and a devalued yuan, um, meaning that they, they're selling for cheap in Africa and undercutting African businesses. So right where we're sitting at the moment, like the you know, the jobs aren't arriving and the jobs are disappearing at the same time. Sure. That might not be true in five years. Um, but that that is where we are now and, and seen from the moment's perspective, it makes it the kind of Chinese Chinese African engagement look pretty bad for normal Africans or, you know, particularly poor Africans. Well one of the things that surprised me about the article was a few of the the graphics that they had there which illustrate the bilateral trade between China and Africa. And it's a lot more balanced than I actually thought it was. I mean, it looks, I mean, they didn't have specific numbers, or maybe they did, I didn't see them, uh, in terms of the specific breakdown. But it does look like almost a 60-40 relationship uh, in terms of China exporting a little bit more to Africa than than Africa exporting to China. Uh, A lot of that export from Africa, of course, is in raw materials and oil in particular. Uh, But at the same time, it does, there is a, a decent balance of payment that you're seeing. Now, that let's stand corrected, is disproportionately concentrated in oil-producing countries, Angola, Sudan, and those countries, uh, that and Nigeria as well. So, But, you know, continent-wide, a balance of payments that's not bad. Now, that goes to Jacob Zuma's comment that said that the relationship when it's this imbalanced is unsustainable. Um, how do you reconcile those two? 
Well, maybe, you know, what, what I understood from, from Zuma's comment is not necessarily the trade is so imbalanced, but that the nature of the exports are imbalanced, in the sense that, you know, the, the Africa is exporting raw materials, obviously, as you mentioned, and, you know, the Africa doesn't have unlimited raw materials. I mean, it has a lot, but it doesn't have, you know, endless amounts, which means that some, if, you, if Africa doesn't start, you know, kind of upping their, their own manufacturing and, and, you know, doing more of that materials, it's just simply going to run out. Um, and then that's, that's what, I, what I saw from his comment. Well, the article is at the Africa Research Institute.org. Uh, just look under China Africa. It's something that came out in October. It's really a well done report. You don't actually hear us this enthusiastic about a research report that often on the show. Uh, generally, we're a lot more cynical than that. But uh, so nice to end the show actually on a positive note for once. Uh, that was uh, that's a good one. So, Kobus, uh, that'll do it for for this week. You know, we've talked about a lot of key issues that are that are that are you know that are on the agenda for this week. Looking forward, what are some of the key issues that you see coming in the weeks ahead that people should be paying attention to? Well, I think the big one is the, the changes changes of guard. You know, not only, well, obviously the American election coming up, and that will have fallout in both China and Africa. The, the change of guard in China, um, and also a big party conference is coming up at the end of the year in South Africa. Okay. That I think, um, you know, is probably going to shape how South Africa um, is going to engage with its in, with its other BRICS members because South Africa is uh, is hosting a BRICS conference early next year. Yeah, and South Africa is increasingly becoming a flashpoint for Sino-African trade, particularly the relationship with unions uh, and auto manufacturing. So this is one of the definitely the countries to watch. Uh, we'll be keeping an eye on that on the show. In the meantime, Kobus, where can people follow you if they want to stay on top of what you're reading and following on Twitter? Um, they can follow me on Twitter at Stadenesk. That's S-T-A-D-E-N-E-S-Q-U-E. And you can follow me at uh, E-O-Lander. That's E-O-L-A-N-D-E-R. I'm tweeting almost every day on the top headlines uh, from the China-Africa space. And then also, don't forget, you can find us over on Facebook at facebook.com slash China Africa Project. Our good friend uh, Ann Sherman in Beijing is maintaining that page for us, so give her a shout-out. One of the things we're trying to encourage people is to not just like an article, because we're putting out lots of articles. We've got over seven 17,000 fans, but we'd like to hear your voice. We'd like to have you participate and get into discussions and, and share things. One of the nice things about this community that we've got on Facebook is that it's really, you know, a real cross-section from across Africa. Um, it's really exciting to see how many different people, and mostly young people, uh, in, their, in their teens and 20s who are, on, who are on the page. And so it's really a great opportunity to engage. So we'd love to see you participate if you'd like to follow us on, you know, on in the audio format, we're on pretty much every major network. So Stitcher, you can follow us there on SoundCloud and as well on iTunes, where we also would love for you to give some comments uh, and your feedback on the show. And of course, you can hit that subscribe button and get the download every single week. So until next week, we'll be back on Sunday with another edition of the China in Africa podcast. Thanks so much for listening. <laughs>